is rather lengthy, but it is not boring. So I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 13, Psalm 110, and Hebrews chapter 7. Genesis 14 first. So let us stand out of reverence for the reading of the word of God. Genesis 14, 17 through 20. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is Abraham, in the valley of Shabbat, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of all that he had. Now in Psalm 110. And these are the only places in which Melchizedek is mentioned in the Bible. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, God the Father says to God the Son, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power, in holy array, from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the days of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And then in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 7. He's mentioned a couple times Melchizedek is mentioned a couple times by name in chapter 5 and 6, but it's chapter 7 that I really want us to focus on. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all 
by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand there is a setting aside of a former commandment, because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. 
Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. You may be seated. Why do you think it is that the Bible chooses an obscure man with an unusual name who's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament to teach us some of the most fundamental and glorious truths about the Lord Jesus Christ? Melchizedek. Let me tell you some things people have said about him. I mean, he's been interpreted and reinterpreted, misinterpreted for centuries. There's, who is he? All we know about Melchizedek is found in chapter 14 of Genesis, verses 18 through 20. That's all we know. Who was he? Well, you have some people. Say he is Jesus. He's the appearance of Jesus Christ himself before the incarnation. Uh, and then there are others who say he is the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. It's when the Holy Spirit became a man. Or... Um, and they have all these different views. My favorite of all these wrong views is today as we speak, there is a real country, a real country with a civil government in the South Pacific called the Dominion of, Nebuch uh, of Melchizedek. It's not a myth. It's a real country. However, this country does not have any citizens. And it does not have any inhabitants. It's simply a stretch of sand in the South Pacific. That's above water sometimes. But it has dozens of banks and financial institutions. Because it's a tax haven. You want to avoid taxes? Put your money in the banks in the country of the dominion of Melchizedek. 
I don't know why they chose Melchizedek. But there's, there, there's just so much falsehood about him. Uh, and yet, the more we know about him, says the book of Hebrews, the more mature Christians we will be. That this obscure man and knowledge of him and his relationship to Abraham and Jesus is some of the most important things you can learn as a Christian. So let's go back to Genesis 14 and let's see what we can know about Melchizedek. Verse 14, 18. Uh, Abraham has just whipped a bunch of pagan kings in order to rescue Lot. And uh, on his way home from victory, he meets this man named Melchizedek. And it says in verse 18, Melchizedek was king of Salem. Jerusalem. It means peace. It's in the word Jerusalem. And the point is, that this man was the king of Jerusalem. His name, Melchizedek, means king of justice, king of righteousness. Salem means peace. So here was this great king who ruled a real country, and that country was known for righteousness and justice and a peaceful way of life. When Abraham came to see him in verse 18, Melchizedek brought out bread and wine and fed him. Now it's tempting to identify that with the Lord's Supper, isn't it? But the Bible doesn't give us that choice. He brought out some bread and wine because Abraham was weary from the battle. And then he blessed Abraham. He pronounced a benediction on him. He said, uh, he, was, uh, he said, blessed be Abram of, the God, of God most high. And so in, in verse 18, I forgot to show you, he was also a priest of God most high. This man worshipped the same God that Abraham worshipped. But he was not of the line of Shem. He was one of those very few people in the rest of the apostate human race by the millions. One of those very few people that were not of the line of Shem, of Seth and Shem, but nevertheless were believers in Almighty God. There were few of them. Not the seed of Abraham. Doesn't belong to Abraham's line. No kin to Abraham. Came from somebody out there in the world. One of the few few people that believed in the Most High God. You knew somebody else was during that time that believed in the Most High God? That was not a kin of Abraham? Job. Job's one of the oldest stories in the Bible. So here he was a king of Jerusalem, 
king of justice, priest of the same God that Abraham worshipped. And Abraham bowed and received a blessing, a benediction, from Melchizedek, who said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed and praised the God Most High, who had delivered Abraham's enemies into Abraham's hand. And so then Abraham gave him a tenth of all that he had. That's all we know. We don't know anything else about this obscure person. But let's see what else the uh, Old Testament says about him. Turn to Psalm 110. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David sees in this man Melchizedek a type of Christ. And in this psalm he says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth his strong scepter from Zion and will say, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will voluntarily follow, freely volunteer to follow you in the day your power is exerted in their lives. Verse 4, the Lord God has sworn an oath and he will not change his mind. Thou, the one that sits at his right hand, thou art a priest forever according to the priestly order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will scatter kings in the day of his wrath. He'll judge among the nations. He'll fill them with corpses. He'll shatter the chief men, scatter the chief men over broad country. He'll drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he lift up his head. So it's, it's messianic. And David is saying that it is God saying to his son who sits at his right hand, You are a great and mighty king. You are a king who will triumph over all of your enemies. None of them will have have a chance. In fact, I swear, says God, to Jesus, you even will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what in the world does that mean? So now we know in this Messianic psalm that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Uh, A type, T-Y-P-E, was a person or an event that God, in creating him and in governing his life, caused him to resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. So all these things, as you might expect, that we read about in Genesis 14 about Melchizedek were all there foreordained by God on purpose in Melchizedek's life to remind you of Jesus Christ who sits at God's right hand in total victory 
and who is sworn by God's oath himself to be forever a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. You know, priests played an important role in Old Testament religion after uh, Moses. Uh, you remember when Jacob had 12 sons? Uh, one of his sons, Levi, was to be the father of all the priests in Israel who would offer sacrifices, who would intercede on behalf of the Israelite people. Aaron, Moses' brother, was one of the most famous of those high priests. So now why are we talking about another order of priests? A priest is a mediator. A priest is a go-between between Israel and God. He offers sacrifices. He teaches them. He prays for them. And you have thousands of priests, Le Le Levitical priests. So now why is it saying that the Messiah will not be a Levitical priest? He's no kin to Levi. He is a son of Judah. So why are we changing priesthoods? Is the priesthood that came from Levi not adequate to represent God's people and to offer sacrifices to God? Of course, the answer to that is no. They are not adequate. That's the whole point. Now, let's turn to Hebrews 7. It's not the easiest chapter to understand, but it is understandable. Because here you have the author of the book of Hebrews telling us how Melchizedek represents Jesus. It's a glorious truth. In chapter 7, he says Melchizedek, who is the king of justice, there's no justice outside of him. The word justice is in that word S-E-D-E-K. M-L-K means king. S-E-D-E-K means righteousness. There is no justice or righteousness outside of the one whom Melchizedek represents. And the one whom he represents is the king of peace. There is no peace outside of him. Now let's get one thing straight. Melchizedek is not Jesus. He is not a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. In this seventh chapter of Hebrews, it says that Melchizedek was made like Jesus, and Jesus was made like Melchizedek, but there is a clear distinction between the two. Melchizedek was a real man in history. He was not Jesus, but he was shaped and formed in his character, in his positions, and in his duties to remind you of one of the greatest truths about Jesus found in the Scripture. What is that? Write this down. That Jesus is supreme over everybody and everything in every way. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. And the writer of the book of Hebrews brings out, brings out all kinds of ways to prove that. And one of his best proofs 
One of his best illustrations is Melchizedek. That Jesus is supreme, incomparably supreme over everybody and everything in every way. Supreme over Abraham, supreme over Moses, supreme over all the Levitical priests, supreme even over Melchizedek and everybody and everything else in the universe. So, here we have Melchizedek, a priest, a king and a priest. wonder if he was a prophet. That would be a nice little package, wouldn't it? That Melchizedek would be a prophet, priest, and king to remind you that Jesus is a prophet, priest, and king. He was a prophet. Not just a priest and a king, but a prophet. When he blessed Abraham, he was speaking as a prophet, bringing down God's blessing upon his life. So here, like Jesus, Melchizedek is a prophet, a priest, and a king of Almighty God. And he is a triumphant king. He met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all of his spoils was first of all by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and also King of Salem, which is the King of Peace. Now that's important. One of the most important things we know about, Ab about uh, Melchizedek, Abraham paid tithes to him. Uh, when you pay a tithe to a representative of Almighty God, you're submitting yourself to his government. You say you're going to live in terms of his blessing on your life. So here Abraham gives a tenth of all that he has to this representative of the same God that he worshipped. Verse 3 is what confuses everybody. It says, Melchizedek is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now the reason that confuses people is how can it be a mere man if he doesn't have a father or a mother or a genealogy or a beginning or an end of life? Well, Melchizedek is a metaphor. Melchizedek is not Christ, but he represents Christ on a human level. For instance, we don't have any genealogy of, of Melchizedek. We don't know where he came from. We don't know his origin. We don't know his mother, his father. We don't know his bloodline. Uh, we don't know when he died. We don't know who or if he had a successor. He just stands there in history without beginning or end on a humanly level. In other words, it's a resemblance that we're looking for. Jesus, the true priest from God, had neither beginning nor end, but is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
and stands there in the midst of history as the eternal God incarnate. Melchizedek sort of looks like that. No mother, no genealogy, no death, no successor. That's just simply saying he reminds you of Jesus. He's not Jesus, but notice the last words of verse 3. He's made like the Son of God. Verse 4, now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, underline that the, there were several other patriarchs in the book of Genesis. There was Noah, there was Isaac, there was Jacob, there was Joseph, but then there was the patriarch of all patriarchs, Abraham himself. Melchizedek knew who he was, and Abraham knew who he was, and these two great trophies of God's grace meet, and Abraham accepts Melchizedek's superiority over him without worrying about his own status. He had faith to believe that Melchizedek was the representative of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true source of all blessing, the one that is the victor over all of God's enemies. Abraham was not afraid to publicly profess, this man is superior to me. And he's not worrying about losing his own important status in the covenant as the patriarch. How did Abraham show Melchizedek that he gladly accepted Melchizedek's superiority? <coughs> he gave a tithe. And here's the point, you see. The person that receives the tithe is superior to the person that gives the tithe. You see that in the text. The person that receives the tithe is superior to the person that gives the tithe. Abraham knew that. And that's the way he was bowing in submission to the supremacy of Melchizedek. Verse 5, And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the Lord to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Melchizedek knew that Abraham was the one that was the reservoir of all the covenant promises of God. Can you, would you like to have been there? Hiding behind a tree and watching the meeting of Abraham, the patriarch, and Melchizedek, the metaphor of Jesus. Wouldn't you love to have been there? They both knew who the other was. 
And Abraham submits himself to him. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. See, whoever pronounces a benediction in Old Testament life is superior to the one that receives the benediction. So you've got two ways that Abraham recognized Melchizedek's superiority to him. He tithed Abraham, Abraham tithed, to tithed to Melchizedek, and Abraham received the blessing of Melchizedek. So the tither is inferior to the one to whom you tithe, and the one that pronounces the blessing is superior to the one that receives the blessing. And remember, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Verse 8. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, now this is an interesting little verse, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Levi wasn't even born yet. Levi was, uh, you got Levi, you got Abraham, you got Isaac, you got Jacob. And then Levi was the son of Jacob, four generations away. And yet it says that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. And that's a sign that the Levites are inferior to the order of Melchizedek. How in the world did Levi pay tithes to Melchizedek? Verse 9, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So even though Levi wasn't born, he was, so to speak, in the loins of his grandfather. And Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, symbolizing the entire inferiority of the whole Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. Now, here's the verse. Now, so why did God do all that? I mean, it's, it's awful complicated. Why did God do all that? Why didn't he just stick with Levi? Why do you have to do away with the, 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 the priest from the tribe of Levi and go to another that was obscure, Melchizedek? Only one of him, thousands of, of descendants of Levi. Like we said a while ago, all the efforts and all the work and all the sacrifices of the Levitical priests in the Old Testament did not do the children of Israel any good. They never forgave one sin. They never reconciled one person to God. They never redeemed from hell any Israelite. 
They were just symbols and had no saving power in and of themselves. All those Levitical priests, including Aaron, all of those Levitical priests could not accomplish salvation in the life of God's people. Thousands of priests, thousands of sacrifices, thousands of lambs, rams, goats, doves, slaughtered on, on altars, and the blood of, of goats and bulls and the sacrifices offered by Levites did not provide any salvation for any Israelite. So there had to be another priesthood. They had to be another priesthood whose work was effective and who could bring perfection and salvation to the people of God, who could accomplish in their lives redemption and renewal. And that was the priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. There's only one priest in that order. He didn't have any successors. There wasn't any other priest in that order but Jesus. You see, the problem, as we see in this text, in the Old Testament, priests were always dying on you. You get your favorite priest, you'd go to him and have him pray for you and offer sacrifices for you. He lived for a few years, then he dies. You go, go, go find another Levitical priest. And then you get attached to him. Some years later, he dies. Then you've got to find you another priest. And these priests are always offering sacrifices. When you worship Jehovah the Old Testament and you had a public worship service, the first thing you do is slit the animal's throat. And so every time there's a worship service, You've got to kill an animal on the, on the altar of sacrifice. And sometimes they would kill thousands in one day. And why'd they have to kill so many? Because their blood did not forgive you of one sin. Let's go on here. Verse 11. Now, if perfection... And that word perfection also means accomplishment, completion. If the completion of our salvation and the accomplishment of our salvation, if that was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? If all of these pre-sacrifices worked, why in the world are we talking about order of Melchizedek? Why even bring him into the subject? Uh, the reason we talk about him is because none of their sacrifices worked. None of their intercessions had any saving effect. There had to be a priest who could accomplish eternal redemption for everyone for whom he was sacrificed, when he was sacrificed, so that there would be no blood shed after that sacrifice. No further blood needs to be shed. 
that one priest's sacrifice was adequate to accomplish salvation for everybody for whom he died forever. You know where we find the word and concept perfection again? Jesus used it on the cross. It's accomplished. It's finished. It's completed. No more blood needs to be shed. No more priests. No more sacrifices. Everything that needs to be done to save God's people, Jesus did on the cross as a priest under the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11 again. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron because their sacrifices and priesthood weren't effective. Now here's a verse that has been perverted. Verse 12, For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. Uh-oh. We've got to throw away our theonomy books. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. So it's what he's saying here that if there's a new order of priests and you don't need Levitical priests anymore because they're of no use, then we should have a new law. And the law of God in the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments, are no longer applicable in this new order. New priests, new law. Christians don't have to worry about obeying the laws of the Old Testament. It's only laws of the New Testament they should be concerned with. That's the argument people give. Well, let's see if they know what they're talking about. Because it gets clearer as we go on. Verse 12, For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated the altar. Jesus came from Judah's tribe, not Levi. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. All right, now what's he saying? It's confusing, but it's really not. He's not talking about all the laws in the Old Testament. He's not saying when you change priesthood from the Levites to the order of Melchizedek because they're not of any use, then you don't have to obey any of the laws of the Old Testament. They're of no use either. It's not saying that at all. It's talking about one particular law in this context. That if the priesthood changes 
the law requiring priests to be from the tribe of Levi changes as well. He's only talking about that one law. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments, all the rest of the Bible, uh, laws of the Old Testament. He's saying if the priesthood, Levitical priesthood, is no longer of any use, then the law that requires priests to be of the tribe of Levi is of no use either. That's all it's talking about. Verse 16, or 15. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement. You see, that's the law that's no longer useful. A law of physical requirement that the priest has to be of the tribe of Levi. This one priest that's of the order of Melchizedek is effective in accomplishing the eternal salvation of everyone for whom he died. Not because he is of the tribe of Levi. That's over with. I love this. It's because of his indestructible life. That's the reason. This priest can do what all those other priests could not do. He had an indestructible life. These other priests were always dying on the people. They were always having to offer thousands of sacrifices. None of them had any effect. The priestly work of this one man this one priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, was able to accomplish eternal salvation for the entirety of the people of God because of his indestructible life. He could not be destroyed. He would never die. He would never disappoint. He died on the cross. God raised him from the dead three days later. And now he has this endless life that he lives for his people. Have you noticed the four endless things in these verses that make Jesus effective in accomplishing salvation for his people? There are four in endless things. See if you can find them. Verse 18, you have the power of an indestructible or endless life. For it is witnessed of him... Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, an endless priesthood. He's a priest forever. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. 
And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he's able to save forever endless salvation. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Endless intercession. Those are the four things that make this one priest. There was only one priest in the order of Melchizedek. Only one. And that's Jesus. You don't need any other priests. You don't need any priests offering sacrifices for you. Why? <laughs> because they're all useless. You only, there's only one priest in all the world who is able to redeem everybody that draws near to God through him. And that's Jesus. Because he has an indestructible life. He has an endless priesthood. That is, the effects of his priesthood are just as strong and undiminished today as they were seconds after he died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross as our high priest and in that one moment obtained eternal redemption for everyone for whom he died. And the power of that death is as undiminished today, 2,000 years later, as it was two minutes after he died on the cross. It's just as powerful to save sinners as it was the day he died. Indestructible life. Endless priesthood. Endless intercession. It's a great thought to think that Jesus is always praying for you. I need people to pray for me. I'm very humbled when people say they're praying for me. But as much as I appreciate your prayers, the one thing that brings joy and humility in my life is that Jesus is praying for me every day of my life. And God answers all of his prayers, which means that because of his indestructible life and his endless priesthood and his endless intercession, he's given me endless salvation, a salvation that will never end. No Levitical priest could do that. Only this priest who is according to the order of Melchizedek. We're almost through. Verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all. Go through the book of Hebrews and look up that phrase, once for all. It's an important phrase. When he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, 
but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Now I want you to notice a word in the next verse, chapter 8. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. See if you, how I misread it. See if I'm going to misread this. See if I read it correctly or incorrectly. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We had such a high priest. 2,000 years ago on the cross, we had such a high priest. And that means we're saved because we had such a high priest. We have. Right now. We have. The only priest in all of history who can give you eternal salvation. You have him. You've drawn near to God through him, and he has you. And where is he? Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You know the unusual thing about that sentence? Levitical priests never sat down. They were always having to work. They were always having to, uh, to offer sacrifices. Their work was never finished. But we have a high priest, the only high priest in history, that has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because he finished the work he came to do. He has overcome all of his enemies. He's accomplished salvation. And now you keep your eyes fixed on him. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Live this life not depending upon any man as a priest and as a sacrifice. Trust in him alone. Rest your eternal destiny upon him and not upon any man. See him as your prophet from whom you learn the will of God for your life. See him as your priest who dedicated his life on the cross to take away your sins and mine. See him as your king who came to rule and govern your otherwise ungovernable life. And he is those things right in the middle of this evil culture. This evil culture with all of its wealth and power cannot overturn anything our Melchizedekian priest does for us. He's prophet, priest, king.
thing, once for all sacrifice, because of his endless life, endless priesthood, endless intercession, and endless salvation. Let us pray. Lord, help us to understand that the gospel is far bigger than we had thought. And the accomplishments and effects of the gospel far greater than we would have expected. We thank you for teaching us about Melchizedek. 